Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. I love it. All right, so uh, back to our series in First Peter. Great to have you. I hope you were able to find a seat. Uh, relax. Uh, so how does it hit you today? Our post-election, when I say God does not want us to rely on political power to transform the world. Maybe I could say it a little more pointedly. In no way will politics ever accomplish anything close to my hopes and plans for the world. So I don't know if you're feeling defeated today or elated, helpless or empowered, fearful or confident, but either way, it may very well be that your expectation is in the wrong place. And this is why perhaps we have potentially experienced a little frustration with Peter, maybe put off by his seemingly lack of concern for uh, the sort of the godless ways of the culture and the society that that he was addressing. He doesn't urge anyone to get out there and, and find positions of power, find some cultural leverage so that you can Bring about change in society. Uh, There's a story behind that, by the way, why Peter doesn't say that. This is because Peter used to think like that. It's it's remarkable that Peter wrote 1 Peter. Because his testimony would be, I came from a background that hoped in political power. I wanted position. Uh, I thought that was God's answer to the problem for Israel. That it was his goal and his plan to get us out from the domination that we've been under and somehow change the world. Uh, Get us out from underneath that. And that's why when we were studying Mark, this was so important. To, to watch Peter go through this process of encountering Jesus in a new way to approach life, society, and culture. Because when you, because remember, Peter helped Mark write Mark. Okay? Peter was the eyewitness that Mark used to write the book. And when you get to the center of the book of Mark, right in the middle, in fact, the middle is how we define the whole series, Can You See Me Now? Because Jesus, at the end of Mark chapter 8, heals, he heals a blind man in two stages. One stage, he starts to see, but he can't see very clearly. Remember, people look like trees to him. And then Jesus has to do something else so that he can really see. And of course, it became a picture of, you can only see partially, you don't see fully. And it's right after that, Okay, that Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? 
And this was Jesus' way of saying, I'll bet you they don't see clearly. I'll bet you they need an adjustment on what they're seeing when they look at me. They'll see one thing, but it won't be the full thing. And so the disciples perfectly oh yeah, well, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're just some prophet that's going to come. All of these would have been significant, religious, powerful, even political figures for the nation of Israel, because that's who they were hoping for. But all of a sudden, Peter gets this burst of, I mean, insight. And he says, because Jesus says, well, who do you guys think I am? And Peter goes, you're the Messiah. Do you realize how incredible it is to have come to that conclusion? You're the anointed king. You're not just a prophet coming. You're more than a prophet. You're the anointed king, the one who has come to rescue our dominated nation. Peter only saw half. Because it's right after that, Jesus says to him, let me tell you the other part of the story that you can't see. And he says this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, this Messiah, is going to suffer, be rejected, killed, and rise again. Okay, this would have been profound uh, for Peter. Profound. Wait a minute. That's what's going to happen to the Messiah? Peter, you got me right. I am the Messiah. I'm not a prophet. I am the Messiah. But you got the other part of the story wrong. And Peter didn't realize it because he says, took, he takes Jesus aside. He takes Jesus aside and he goes, let me, let, me, let me just tell you something. Do you realize who we are? We come from Israel. Our whole background, our whole life is all about getting us out of the politically dominated rule that we've been under. We're tired of being stepped on. You can't come in here, Messiah, and die. You have to dominate. You can't tell these guys that. They'll all go home. Because Peter only saw half of it. And it was not easy for him to see. And you remember, right after this, what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me what? You're not even on the same team for seeing me as a political figure who's trying to dominate, take power, and control. You're not even on the same team. And then he says this to the crowd. You want to follow me? You deny yourself. We're not, looking, we're not grasping for power. We're not grasping for leverage or position. We're denying ourselves. We're taking up a cross. Um... We're losing our life. We're not trying to profit and gain. We're trying to forfeit. That's language national Israel could not grasp, by the way. That's why they ended up killing Jesus. You're claiming to be something you can't possibly be. That's how Peter saw things. Uh, 
I can see that you're the right person, but that kind of rule is not going to work here. That's sort of how Americans think a little bit. We have a national heritage. We think we deserve certain uh, political, cultural uh, privileges, freedoms. Um, Somehow the church's job is to make sure we have religious freedom in the world. And as long as we have religious freedom in our nation, then the church has done its job. We think the exact same way Peter did nationally. He struggled to use terms like cross, deny, forfeit, lose. They're not American terms. They were certainly not Jewish terms. Jesus invites us into a kingdom that runs on love and servanthood and sacrifice, not control and power, even though it really looks weak and it really looks ineffective. And Peter had no sense of how to connect those realities to his life. I mean, come on, he grew up in it. He grew up the dominated one. And you remember that as soon as they come to get Jesus in the garden, as soon as that mob, as soon as those soldiers come to get Jesus, first thing Peter does, what's he do? He reaches for that sword. Because it was in his DNA. Jesus told him many times, Peter, I'm not here for looking for power. I'm not here looking for power. I'm not here looking for control. I'm not here trying to do that. I'm not here trying to gain political leverage. But it was Peter's sort of psychological bent. It was in his DNA. It was in his muscle memory. No, 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 no. You're not dominating me anymore. You're not taking anything from me anymore. He pulled out that sword, and Jesus told him, put it away. Put it away. And then he looked at the crowd. He actually, in Mark, rebukes the crowd, not Peter. And he rebukes the crowd, and in essence, rebukes everybody when he says, you know, I was preaching in the temple every day, in the pure daylight. You come at night with swords. Do I look like somebody who's a revolutionary? Do I look like somebody who's going to politically cause upheaval? You could have arrested me in the broad daylight. You come at night. Is that how you see me? You guys see me that way. My own disciples see me that way. I'm trying to tell you both. That's not me. Incredible moment. And you ask yourself in the story, can Peter ever change his mindset? And this is a great question for you to ask for the rest of this talk. You think it's possible for me to change one of my mindsets? about things, about anything. Because I would have told you, (laughs) I think Peter's too ingrained. I mean, way too ingrained. But then he writes 1 Peter. He must have gone through some phenomenal experience. Because he's going to look at this group of people who would like some a little more social, cultural, and political clout, and he's going to tell them, stop panicking. Don't worry about the fears and the losses and the, and, the, and the opposition. Don't stress over that. And he's also going to tell them, don't power up either. Wait, 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 Peter, you're going to tell us not to power up? You're going to tell us not to draw the sword? Yeah, it's me. In fact, you know what I'll tell you? 
can you believe these words are coming out of the mouth of this guy who drew the sword? This is what he says. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter finally got it. It's it's amazing what he's telling us to do in light of who he was. And you know what he does? Rather than stand there with us and point fingers at society and tell us how bad it is, Peter takes this bright light and he shines it on the church. He says, judgment begins with us. You want to radically critique your society? I'm going to turn the tables on you and I'm going to radically critique the church. It's as if Peter is trying to say, get your eyes off of what's happening out there and get your mind right about what God is doing with you as a people. Who you are, what you have, what you're capable of. And he'll say very simply, very simply, just be the church. And do you know what that means? Be the church. And live your faith. That's your identity and your engagement. What we're talking about over the next few weeks. Honing in on really what does it mean to be that church and what does it mean to live that faith out. So let me ask you. Does the church so profoundly exist in your life that it keeps you grounded when society doesn't operate the way you want it to? So that the full weight of your life is governed, determined, by that community or by the ills, stresses, and concerns outwardly? Are you grounded enough in the church that you know its mission? Let me ask you this. Are you locked into the church's true mission? Because that's what Peter is having to adjust us all with, just like he had to go through. You know, have you, have you bought into it? Are you, are you really connected to the church, God's plan for it? See your role in it? Or have you just been really distracted, stressed about everything else going on out there? You really don't jump in with both feet as the people of God. Peter's saying, drop the sword, release it. Recapture the sense of wonder of being the people of God. That's what he's going to help us see over the next few weeks. I don't know if it's, I hope it registers with you that that is what we need to hear right now at this time in our country. Less about us, less fear. Howard Wass, who I've been reading and found just some, just such great reading from him. I'm reading a new book by him called, it's not really new, but it's new for me, another one of his. Uh, it's called A Community of Character, and he writes this. Because of who we are, he says, no longer does the threat of death force us into desperate measures to ensure our safety or significance. A people freed from the threat of death can afford to face the truth of their existence without fear and without defensiveness. It's my favorite line. They can even take the risk of having the story of a crucified Lord as their central reality. 
I can just hear Peter say, I went from thinking I needed a, a politically dominant, militant leader to somebody who would literally die on a cross. How do you go from that to this? How do you do that? Well, Peter's going to help us right now. First Peter chapter 2. We saw last time this very, very, that we have a very profound connection to Christ. He is the living stone. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Remember? He is the living stone. So we have this profound connection to him. Now, we're very used to hearing Jesus as Savior, not stone. Let me tell you the difference between those. When we think of Jesus, we think of him dying and rising. That was for our salvation. Soteriology. We think that. When we think of Jesus dying and rising, we think of something he did for us so that we can go to heaven. Peter's calling him a stone here. As if the dynamic in your relationship with him has got a profoundly different kind of impact than just salvation. He's a stone, which means there's an ecclesiological part of this. There's a church part. When we think of Jesus dying and rising, we don't think of connecting to the church. We don't think of it as a dying and rising as a paradigm for my life. We just think it as something that was done for us so that we could go to heaven. And Peter is about to change that dynamic because the life you have requires something of you. Uh, a right relation, connection to Jesus leads to a right relationship to the church. That's what it produces. He becomes a foundation stone that dictates the dimensions of your world. And so because he is a living stone and I am attached to him, I become a living stone. This is how I have to see myself I can't see myself in Peter's picture as the guy who gets to go to heaven because Jesus died and rose again. No, Jesus is a stone, and I need to see myself as one of the rocks, one of the stones that are being built into something incredible. That's what he means by believe. That's being built. That's the grand building project that God has, and I'm one of the stones. Do I see myself as that? It's incredibly a thought here. Because now we're all connected together. It's not just one stone. We're all, all the stones are connected to him. Well, if all the stones are connected to him, I'm connected to all the stones. I'm not just connected to the stone. I'm connected to all the stones. What an incredible metaphor. What an incredible image. Because God's building something out of us. That's what Peter wants to know. I'm building something out of you guys. Do you know that? And so whatever it is that's happening to you in this hostile society that you live in, Peter says, this is the place of significance. This is the place of purpose. This is the place of, of power. This is the place of presence. This is the place. Has that hit you? So what does he mean when he calls this thing just look at what he's going to say about these stones. This is what we have to tease out to find our identity because we can't figure out how to engage society until we understand who we are. Well, the first thing we have to realize is we're stone. What, what, do, what do you mean? Stones for what? A spiritual house. 
A spiritual house that has holy priesthood and spiritual sacrifices happen in there. So there's all kind of incredible spiritual things going on in here that Peter wants the church's attention about. And he calls it a spiritual house. And that's what we're going to just look at for just a second. What does he mean by the house? That, that would be the church. So the church sort of replaces the temple in the Old Testament. And all the Old Testament texts that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2 reinforce the fact that what used to be in the Old Testament, where God used to be in the temple, now he's in the church. We are the spiritual house. That's got some implications. I want to give you a few implications, then I want to apply it to you. Here's the few implications for you. We'll only, you know, tease out a little bit of this. The first thing is, uh, when we talk about stones, we talk about construction. The first thing that comes to our minds is a building, some kind of a structure, something you can see. It's got dimensions to it. You see it. You can actually, it's being built. So if you were watching a building being built, which do you think we are? We are. I watch it every single day, every day of my life since that thing started. I'm watching that building go up. And when a building is going up, there's something about it. Tangible, material, majestic. You, you, you're, you're drawn to it. You're a little mesmerized by it. You can't believe how it's being constructed, how it all comes together, the process of the whole thing. And then you might even think to yourself, I can't wait to go in there. I'm going to look forward to being in there. Something about that. There's something attractive about that. Well, this isn't a physical thing. This is a spiritual thing. But it should be creating wonder. The same way a really good-looking building, something real and tangible, the church ought to be that same thing. It's God's building project. It has no walls. What you have is a bunch of spiritual activity going on that we'll tease out here soon. But whatever it is, it's really high. Whatever kind of activity is going on in there, it's really sacred. He uses words that the Old Testament would have been very, uh, they would marvel at the idea of calling everybody a priest and that everybody's doing spiritual sacrifices. Because that was only for the spiritual elite. That was for special people who entered into the presence of God. And not everybody could do that. And so what he does is he takes all our activities together when we're together. And all our actions, when the stones are gathered, all our activities and all our interactions are elevated to the same kind of holy, sacred place they would have been if you were an Old Testament priest about to walk into the Holy of Holies. Very carefully. You know how they walked into the presence of God in the Old Testament? like that. Very sacred. Each stone has a role to play for the integrity and the well-being of the whole thing, every single part. One of the things I've marveled at in this week is, is, is you know, and I, I, you, hear, you either hear beep, beep, beep. There's a truck backing up. There's a truck coming in. There's one just delivered something. There's one that's leaving. You know why? Because all the stuff has to be on the property. We just recently had a bunch of siding that was delivered and it wasn't covered well. So it got scratched, had to be sent back. And now the new siding is here and it's all going up already. And in two weeks, the whole outside will be done and you'll be able to see this thing. And every single piece matters to the whole thing. And there's people from the church's side and from the general contractor's side who are making sure all the things are here to make the building 
what we wanted it to be. That's what we are as stones. So you can imagine if you told these guys to come out here and build this building with half of the material. Because there's some stones, because unlike real stones, living stones have legs. And they talk a lot. They talk a lot. You know how hard it is to build something with stones that have legs? You ever say to something in your life that's moved or missing, and you say, I think it grew legs. That's because it's a real pain in the neck. If inanimate objects get legs. You know how hard it is to build? I don't know what they're building out there, and I'm sure there were some complications. Do you know how hard it is to build something with, with, with us as the, well, I don't really want to be there today. I don't really feel like it today. I'm mad today. It's really tough. God says, I need all of you here to build the thing. Or we're going to have, you know, who knows what we're going to have. It's not going to look like what it's supposed to look like. That's the point. So you can't just be a stone that's lying around. You can't just be a stone that says, you know, I'll stay over here in this heap or scattered around somewhere. You're placed with purpose. When God calls you to any church, I don't care which church it is, he wants you to find the place you fit and become part of that spiritual house. Now, the final thing that uh, the implications are is that what this is being built into is a single unit, but it requires a plurality of stones. That means whatever God is doing in the building cannot be individually realized. Peter is saying, you want to be a stone by yourself, you want to go sit over there by yourself, you don't want to be a part of the building, then whatever God is doing in this building, he's not going to be doing for you. There's something happening when the stones are together that does not happen when the stone is by itself. So don't try to get built up by God all alone without finding your place into the, into the building you got to be a part of the corporate team. A lot of us are trying to grow alone, but not fitting in to the body. So you got to be together. Um, I know you can, everybody has their reasons why they keep a little distance from really fully becoming part of the people of God and the community that they're in. And they can look at the church and they see its problems, and I'll be the first one to tell you it's got problems. Um, and you think to yourself, how does God put up with it? But then somehow in the back of our minds, we think, well, I'll separate from that because I think God can put up with me alone. And there's this idea that somehow God can't put up with the community, but he can put up with me. Are you kidding me? Do you really think, (laughs) are you here willing to say, God puts up with me? I don't know how he puts up with you guys. If he puts up with you, me, alone, surely he can deal with us together. That's Peter's message. Want to know what God's up to in a hostile society? He's building his church. I hope you're one of the stones and I hope you fit in. And I hope you're part of this building project. That's what he's saying. Church is not accidental to Christianity. It's the centerpiece. It's the headquarters of what God's doing in the world. Peter is saying, that's where your head ought to be. It's more powerful than any other power. 
Why are you grasping or hoping or expecting for power, position, or purpose anywhere else? Why would you do that? So today, I only want to focus on one piece. I just want to focus on the spiritual house piece because there's just too much to, to, to try to grasp. This is the most important piece to the rest of the pieces. So let's get it first. Uh, the reason the church is so sacred in the language here and so valuable and, and important is because God resides there. It's his house. He resides there in a way he doesn't reside anywhere else. I mean, I, I reside here to a certain degree. I spend a lot of time here at the church. I spend a lot of time different places of my life. You probably do too. But when you go home, home is different. It's a different presence of yours. That's what the church is to God. So God's a present in a lot of ways, but not like he is in the house. This is where he is at home. That's why it's a house and not just a building. He's not just somewhere. He's home. That's what we are when we're together. Uh, he resides there. His presence fills it. Now, his presence is really important in the scriptures. The whole Old Testament, through from Genesis to Revelation, is the story of how God wants to live among his people. And from Genesis 3, we get kicked out of the garden, and God has the dilemma of how am I going to be with sinful people? How is that going to happen? So what does he do? He forms a nation in Genesis 12 with Abraham, and he says, I'm going to be amongst you as the nation. And remember what he did. He, he, he loved these people so much, wanted to be with them so much, he was willing to go camping. He camped with them. I'll live in a tent if I have. If it takes living in a tent, I'll live in a tent with you in the wilderness to be with you. I'll be a cloud. I'll be a fire. I'll be whatever you need me to be, but I'll be here. Even though it's limited and partial and mediated, I still want to be among you the best I can. But the truth of the matter was, we couldn't have his full presence because we, number one, we didn't deserve it, but number two, we couldn't survive it. In Exodus 19, remember these people are like coming into the presence of God when God shows up at Mount Sinai for these people. Moses is like, I would love to see your glory, and God says, it'll kill you. I'll just give you a glimpse. Otherwise, it would kill you. The people down below are like, we don't want to see anything. They're going, please get away, God. Because that's part of the problem with God's presence. It's too overwhelming. And then finally, David's son Solomon gets to build the kingdom. You know how big of a deal it was to build the temple? It was such a big deal for Solomon to be able to build that temple because this was going to be a house for God. God's finally going to have a house. And he comes into that temple. And then you get to Ezekiel after after time spent there, and the Israel's just disobedient. Finally, God says, I can't stay here anymore because these people are just so disobedient. i got to leave. And then you see the reluctant moves of the Spirit, the glory of God, His presence, moving His brilliant, infinite beauty, presence, character, leaving the temple until it's vacant and empty. Heartbreaking to God. And then you come to the New Testament, and the church is the place where God dwells now. This is the place he wants to be. This is his new house. And it's not a real big physical building. It's when we're together, when we are doing anything together. God is there like no other place. And so listen, verse 4. 
where he says, let's go back up to here. As you come to him, this is Peter saying, you want to come to him? Remember, this is the, uh, the, the verb for go in the Old Testament. Draw near is the word used in the Old Testament. Draw near to God. Remember, it was always a hush. Coming near to God, you risked your life. Now Peter is saying, we come to him like it's common, like it's everyday stuff. But when you come to him, when you come to him, guess what? You're going to be built. You come amongst other stones. So you're going to draw near to God. When you come into my presence, you realize you're getting built into something bigger than you are. Uh, It's incredible language. It's the language Peter's basically saying, when you come to him, you come to us. When you come to him, you come together. And so all this incredible sacred language is used to describe the sacredness of being in God's presence together. So Peter is essentially taking Exodus 19, which is behind verse 4 and verse 9, as we'll see. Exodus 19, which is when all the people were scared at Mount Sinai to see God. Peter is basically using that language to say, it really has the audacity to say, the glory you couldn't, you couldn't see back then is now residing amongst you. That's essentially what he's saying. The brilliant, powerful, beautiful character and presence of God, this devastating thing that was once mediated and partial is now, is now among you when you gather corporately. Somehow, God is attracted to us more than me. He's attracted to us more than any one of us. And he loves to inhabit us in, in community. So the presence, listen, um, this presence is what I need most. Haven't you ever mumbled to yourself, I wish God would show up right now. I could really use God right now. It's what I need more than anything. This is what changes me. This is what transforms me. This is what gives the church its life, is his presence. He does something to us, in us, and with us when we gather like he does in no other time. I'll never get it anywhere else what I get here when we're together in any setting. And that's why, you know, you can feel it a little bit. We've had the opportunity to feel what it's like to have, do it at home. I mean, I've had a number of people tell me who were at home for so many weeks or whatever watching online because it's a different experience than when you're in this room together. When we're singing together, it's not like singing in the living room. When we're praying together, it's not like praying in the living room. When we're, when we're uh, hearing God's word and, and interacting with them, it's not like being in the living room. Something when we're together that's potent about God's presence because he loves being among his people. And something happens when he's here and when we're together. There's a transcendence that we're all looking for, something bigger than a, than a stage, than a song, than a podium, than a message. We need God to show up. And he says, this is how I do it when you gather. And sometimes, and he's always here in a special way, always with us in a special way, 
Remember where two or three are gathered in my name? I mean, I'm with you. But there's something happens when we gather together. Uh, every once in a while, he'll break in in a special way. And you go, oh, my gosh. That was a moment. Those are credible, special moments when that happens. Uh, Isaiah had one of those. And it's interesting when he had it. Can I, in Isaiah 5, Uzziah dies like one of Israel's best kings. And they're in a political turmoil now. And Isaiah says, I got to go to the temple. I got to get in there and be in the presence of God because we're lost out here in society. Nationally. He goes into the temple, remember? And all of a sudden, the, the train, the glory of God fills that temple and a moment happens that changes Isaiah. And Two things happen when God shows up. This is why it's kind of scary. Most of us are pretty casual. Right now, if God showed up, we'd be like, well, I hope he does. You know, if he shows up, that'd be really great. I wonder if he'd sit with me if he comes in. We're very casual about it. And when Isaiah saw God lifted up, holy as he was, the first thing that happened to Isaiah was, woe is me, I'm undone. Like we sang earlier, I'm undone. I'm coming apart. I, I, I realize I can't survive the presence of God. I'm not holy enough. The first thing that happens is he realizes he's got unclean lips. He's impure. And the second thing that happens is God says, I need somebody. And Isaiah, what are you, you going to say if God shows up and he says, I need somebody? What are you going to say? I'll tell you what Isaiah said. Here I am, send me. Because that's what happens when he shows up. He's going he's to use you and he's going to change you. That's what his presence does. That's why we need it more than anything else. We need it more than anything else. Don't you love it? I mean, a few weeks ago, Anthony McCann was preaching, and he, and he literally said, I was sitting right over there when God showed up. He said, I was sitting right there, and God grabbed a hold of me, and I got my behind down here, and I immediately surrendered my life to him. Something happened. That's how it works when God shows up. He does something in you. I know when God shows up, if God were to show up right now, we'd say, hey, let me walk you outside and show you how bad things are out here, because... I don't think you've seen it, how bad this country is. Uh, let me take you out there, because uh, let's watch the news for just a few minutes, and you'll be devastated. That's not how it works when God shows up. That's why Peter loves the house of God, because when he shows up, he changes us, and he uses us. And all of a sudden, you would say things like, uh, there's countless stories like that one, you know, where Maybe God grabs a hold of your heart for the first time like he did with Anthony. But sometimes you say, I'd never have done that. I'd never surrendered to that. I would never believe that. I would have never given that. I would have never connected to people in that setting. I would have never done that. I would have never volunteered for that. I would have never uh, had that part of my life really ever change. I would have never gone there. I would have never risked that. You would have never done it until God shows up. All of a sudden, you're doing stuff you would have never seen yourself doing. Just like Peter just like Peter. And so Peter's saying, hey, enlarge your expectations. Expect God to come in here and do something in and with you. Raise your ambitions. Lift your eyes. We come together and we just, we know God's here, but there's times when he shows up and you just want to be here when it happens. 
You want to be here when he does it in you, and you want to be in here when he does it with us. That's how it works. So why wouldn't you connect and covenant and, and contribute to a church body where God says, that's what I'm doing? You wonder where I'm at. You wonder what I'm doing. This church is my house. Now, now maybe you're waiting for God to show up and do something big out there. Maybe that's been the focus of your life. Show up out there, God, and God's saying, I'm in here. Be transformed by me. Do you know what I can do in you and through you? Do you know that you need that more than anything else? Or there'd be a really long list of things you think you need before you got to this one. You're telling me I'm a stone that has to fit in somewhere and that's more important than anything else going on in the world? That's what Peter's saying. Have you bought into that? The materials that God uses to build us is in community and in church as the people of God when we're together. So we have this very individualistic view of ourselves. Uh, we're, we're very, um, well, I think I can do it myself. I'm really okay out here. I can do it. You know, we're individualistic. It's American mentality, individualistic. Um, you, you know, you, you're a little connected, but you're not too connected. Don't get overboard, that kind of a thing. I got this. I got this. It's that kind of thing. I, I know who I am. I'm, I, I, I've discovered my true self. Hmm. Hmm. And God said, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. That's not how I build into you. I build into you as you fit. So certainly, cutting back on your commitments, detaching, stepping away, distancing yourself from the church, that is not what God has in mind. Uh, in, a, in, in Resident Aliens, Hauerwas has this great observation uh, about Peter that I, I just loved. He says, so important, the gift of the church that it gives us. It's such a richer, he says, there's a richer range of options in, in, our commu- in the community. Commitments, duties, and troubles, all of them we would have if left to our own devices. Um, the church gives us a far richer experience than we would ever have by ourselves, is what he's saying. And then he writes this, and it hit me hard. Without Jesus, Peter might have been a really good fisherman. I heard that, and I just thought to myself, I don't want to go through life being a good anything, and that's all it was. He's a good salesman. He's a good builder. Uh, what else? But Harawa says this, he would have never gotten anywhere, though. He would have never really gotten anywhere. He would have never learned what a coward he really was. Peter didn't see himself as a coward. That was the sword drawer. He'd have never known he was a coward until he got in community, until he got it with the Messiah. He would have never known that. 
He would have never known how confused he was. He would have never known it. He would have never become the confessing person that he became or the courageous person that he became. He became so courageous, he even became a good preacher. Guaranteed he didn't see himself as that. So Peter stands out, he writes, as a true individual, or better, a true character, not because he'd become free or his own person or really excelled in something in the world, but because he'd become attached to the Messiah and the Messianic community, which enabled him to lay hold of his life and make so much more of his life than if he had been left to his own devices. I'm trying to think of what my life would be like if you subtracted the 25 years I've been a part of Hillside. That is a scary thought. And I'm not talking about just what we've, what, who we are as a church. I'm talking about just me as an individual. And the changes that have happened in me. So what would it be like if, he sh- if God showed up to you right now? In your own heart right now. Well... Let me list a few things, see if anything comes to your mind. We'll close. Just, just all I want you to do is meditate now and focus very, very personally. Maybe you would put down the sword. Quit fighting the world. Maybe the excuse of being too busy, and that's the reason you don't find your place as one of the stones in the church, would go away. It would just disappear today. Maybe the excuse of being too timid, reserved, that's the reason. Things get complicated in there. I I, I don't need that. Maybe that would go away if God showed up. Maybe the anger that is literally shrinking your heart and destroying it, blackening it, would start to dissipate. Maybe the money that you have saved would no longer be off limits to God. Maybe you would stop pointing the finger and lift one to help the church. Maybe you wouldn't let social media Dictate your life. Fill in the blank. If God showed up, what would he do in your heart? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time, your word. Right now we ask you to show up. Do something in us, change us. In Jesus' name, amen.